0: Hi, and welcome to the Slush podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Will Marshall is the co-founder of Planet Labs and a former researcher at NASA. Tattu Koivista talked to him about leading the mission to provide daily imagery of our planet. First, it would be great to introduce you. So, uh, you said yourself that you are uh, a space geek who still uh, matters what is happening on the Earth. So, you still care about what is happening over here. But can you open up a little more about yourself? What is that you really are doing on a daily basis?
1: Well, on a daily basis, I'm doing um, managing this company, but uh, but I mean, what what we care about is is the impact of this technology. I mean, we're really space geeks trying to use satellites to help us here on the Earth. Um, I mean, I was involved at NASA on various missions to other planets. Like, I sent a few probes to the moon and looked for water, and we found water on the moon, and that's really exciting as a scientist. But it's not very helpful most of the time for people here on the Earth. Um, and wanted to turn our attention to this planet and how we can help it.
0: Cool. Uh, so, as as now you have sent over like hundreds of satellites, like over three hundred. Yes, was it?
1: over three hundred. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you must already have quite a big amount of data from from Cor- those satellites. Correct. Yes. Um, uh, so, you said that you wanted to help help the planet, and of course, also uh, make a prospering company economically. Uh, what are some of the most like exciting applications of that the data that you you guys are already
1: producing like massive amounts of? Yeah. Like can you like commercially?
0: That? Uh, both actually, yeah.
1: Okay, on the commercial side, our biggest markets are in agriculture, consumer maps, and governments. Uh, so in agriculture, people use it to improve uh, precision agriculture. is basically. We have a near-infrared band on our satellite and from which we can tell crop yield on a pixel-by-pixel pixel basis. We actually tell biomass. And so that helps farmers to, 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 to determine when to plant, what to plant, when to add fertilizer, when to add water, and things like this. In consumer mapping, it's kind of obvious. they just... People want like Google want more up to date satellite imagery layers, so Google is one of our clients um, and in governments, they use it for a wide variety of uh, use cases, like I was saying on stage, like disaster response recently uh, with the hurricanes. Um, but there are other industries as well, um, and on the commercial side and on the humanitarian side it 's sort of uh, you know twelve of the seventeen sustainable development goals, we believe that our data can it's not a silver bullet to all problems, but of, of course. But, it, but we do believe that we can substantively help a, a 12 of the 17 goals on a global basis. And, and you want to open this data or democratize the uh, imagery.
0: Uh, are you already seeing like startups starting to use your data and how,
1: how that, that goes? Absolutely, yeah. We're seeing that all, all over the place. A couple of examples. Uh, we have a startup that is... It uh, uses an algorithm to find fires in rural areas like in the outback in Australia or in rural areas of California or other places and, and then alert fire department departments of those fires uh, uh, before they run wild. Um, we have, uh, we have an- another one that I saw recently that was amazing. It um, was looking at ship activity, mainly in the Middle East, but this is generally applicable. And they were just looking at where the ships were going, and whether they were following uh, the embargoes of Qatar, or whether they were um, uh, they were always turning on their beacons when they meant to. The ships are meant to use AIS beacons to track, to tell everyone else where they are. And but our imagery often finds ships that aren't tra- broadcasting those beacons, and then these these guys are looking at that and going, "Oh, what is that ship doing?" And it's fascinating, and telling Coast Guards that there's these ships that are meeting in the sea, not transmitting AIS, and it's fascinating.
0: Cool. That sounds very interesting. Uh, So, from the time that you started, it was like... uh, Six years ago. Six years ago, yeah. So, machine learning must have gone like ways... Up since then, and you guys have lots of images and imagery. Uh, what is this uh, other? If I if I'm correct, like you have this part where you can provide the images, but then there's also the indexing part. So, uh, are you already helping people with the data that you have already indexed, or is someone else doing it? And what do you see like in the future? Like is that that going to be even the bigger than actual the image usage?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, so uh, it, it, we are applying this analytics. We have some that is working, but. And we're working with partners who are doing additional analysis. So, you know, there's so many things that can be done with our data. What we want to do is all the analytics that's cross-vertical. So this object detection is useful for lots of people. If you can track ships, that's useful for governments. It's useful for coast guards. It's useful for companies that are tracking activity. It's useful for hedge funds. It's useful for humanitarian, you know, people that are trying to stop illegal fishing. You know, so tracking ships is useful. So we build the track ship-tracking capability, and then other people can tap into those information feeds. Um, but other people might build you know, more bespoke applications, taking in other data sets and building on the data. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, 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 we want to do core analytics and let a thousand flowers bloom in terms of having other people b- uh, apply uh, their algorithms and other capabilities on top of our data.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, uh, if I would start to use your APIs or... Uh, something do I get like free trials and yes. API keys, and I can st- start? Yeah, you can get trying. a free
1: trial to get going exactly uh, for a few months, and and uh, this some of our data that we have open sourced. Uh, most of our data you still have to purchase, but some of our data we've open sourced. The stuff in California so that people can have a sandbox to play in.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was actually checking out the Open California before. I was like, when is Open Finland coming? Like, could you please do Open Finland for next year? we have to talk to the Finnish government about that. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Um, Yeah, so uh, there's a question from the audience, like, uh, how do you verify the accuracy of images? Like, do you compare it with the ground data? And, like, um, or... Or if you if you're selling some images to the end users, how do they know that it's it's correct and and they can really
1: use it? So we calibrate our satellites before we launch them. So uh, there's ground calibration, and then in orbit we calibrate on a set of very well calibrated targets on the ground, and then um, so yes, certain targets that are very high elevation and have very clear albedo, so that we know um, what the satellite is seeing is is if you like radiometrically calibrated so that we know how many photons turn into how many electrons on every pixel on every camera across our fleet of satellites. Then other users do more calibration like we'll have agricultural companies that have set, set test plots of land which they monitor with ground sensors really carefully, verify that our data is accurate and then apply it to all the other fields without having to have those ground sensors, right? So that's called ground truthing and that's done a lot. In terms of the veracity of the data, of course, we do a lot. Of, we en- encrypt the links up and down to the satellite to ensure that we uh, can't get hacked and things. And and that you know, so the veracity of the data is it, you know is locked down from that uh, perspective. Interesting. Um, so uh, there's
0: obviously there. That's a big challenge to do something complex as a satellite. And um, what was like. Well, you you have background in NASA, as you as you told. But do you remember the first time that you got this idea? Like, how did you come up with that? Hey, we are gonna imagine like take photos of every single place on the Earth and do it daily.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a fun story. I mean, we we were at NASA and uh, one of our bosses kept on pulling out his smartphone and saying, hey, you know, most of us satellite, what is needed for a satellite is in your smartphone. It has a hard drive, it has sensors, it has radios, it has GPS, it has accelerometers they put in for games and stuff, but that is what you need for figuring out where you are. Um, And we realized... Uh, And so these things cost $500, and most satellites cost $500 million. And we were like, oh my god, there's quite a difference between those two numbers. Six zeros. We're like, this is crazy. So we we challenged ourselves to throw some phones into space and to see if they would work, if the consumer electronics would work in space. And we did. uh, We put some Android phones in space because uh, we couldn't hack the iPhones quite as easily. Um, we wanted to do certain things that are more root, if you like. And we put them into orbit, and they took pictures, they were just tumbling around, and they took pictures, and we got amateur radio uh, users to, to to get the pictures back to us, because we hadn't got any money for this project. Um, and in fact, we got a lot into a lot of trouble with NASA for this project, because we hadn't really officially done it. We just somehow snuck the phones up. and. Uh, then they worked and, and they were taking pictures and we were like, oh my God, what if we could do this a lot more? We would need better quality pictures. We need proper telescopes and stuff. And uh, we did, you know, so that was when we came up with this idea of daily imaging. If we could image the whole planet every day. But I mean, honestly, some of that story sort of trivializes the difficulty because... The satellites are really fucking complicated, excuse my language, um, and you know, we had to invent our own radio systems, our own telescope systems, we had to build our ground stations around the world, we had to invent mission control systems. At NASA we would have 200 people doing round-the-clock operations for each satellite, each one satellite. And we have hundreds of satellites and a small team, so we couldn't possibly do that. So we had to automate all the mission control, and then we have to do all the data processing in an automated way with this tremendous amount of data. And so combined, this is an incredibly complicated engineering project. I mean, we call it a sort of minor Apollo project we've undertaken. And so it's not for the faint hearted doing the project like we did. Yeah. Okay, so you, you got this idea
0: and then you just tested it out. Like you sent real phones. Did they, okay, that's cool.
1: Yeah, so the, where the phone sat project was at NASA and then we left NASA to start Planet. Yeah. Okay, and
0: from there you ended up in that, that garage that we all saw in the images. Correct, that was the
1: garage where we lived when I we were at NASA and we just started building the satellites in there, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Well, um, when when you started, uh, was there some, like, uh, you you already mentioned, like, some of the biggest, some of the big... Uh, like technical challenges, but like from the company building view, like what were the early stages and challenges that you faced faced then? Uh, like startup, a startup that is
1: going to the space. Like I can imagine that is not something super simple. Well, yes, that's true. Um, uh, the, 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 some of the challenges we faced were the fact that everyone thought we were crazy. Well, <laughs> not the, you know the the. Uh, we had to deal with a lot of regulatory approvals for our satellites. I mean, you have, to, it, you have to get permission to put satellites in space from various agencies, International Telecommunications Union and things like this. Um, we have to get launch. Uh, providers and you know you can't just go on eBay and buy a rocket you know like it's really uh, about uh, connections but I mean from our NASA experience we had those connections but we we had to persuade them that we can still build cool satellites that weren't gonna blow up their rocket or the big satellite that they're putting on the push cost a billion dollars right and so they're very cautious about just letting people throw satellites on you know um, and so there's some of the challenges but I mean everything else is normal like for any startup. You know, you get to 20 people and then you suddenly need hierarchy because no one knows what each other are doing. And then you get to 70 people and then you need some sort of org structure more comprehensive than that and experience management, which I'm not. I am just a scientist. And, you know, and then you get to 150 people and then people don't know each other's names. And you have to then bring in another level of structure and sort of had divisions and things. And so we went through all of that same as any other company. And now we're about 450, 500 people now. Okay, okay. Um, but the journey has been
0: very nice for you guys. Like, um, um, but going for space, so you didn't need you needed all those regulatory stuff and all sorts of different things for a startup that is going going for space. And uh, is there something uh, or some advice that you wanted to give for a startup that is going going for space? I know uh, I study in the University, and we are. Uh, our, in our uh, university campus, there is actually one, one startup that is doing the satellites things. So is there some advice that you could give for people who are interested in that field?
1: Well, I mean, I would, I would say to them the same I would say to any entrepreneur, which is I think the biggest thing that differentiates entrepreneurs that succeed with those that don't is endurance it 's simply sticking with a project at, through thick and thin um, i mean of course you 've got to have the right a good idea and the timing has to be right and and you have to have you know a, a good dose of luck frankly, but in addition to all of those things you 've got to have endurance and endurance is what separates uh, uh, those that succeed and those that don 't in my opinion and and so space projects that 's particularly true of because It's not going to happen overnight. You know, we had more than, uh, I mean, typical launches have about a one-year delay. So when when you book a launch, they'll say, oh, we're launching 18 months. And then they typically launch after another year after that in practice uh, because launches are really hard and uh, it's complicated. Um, And so we had one Russian launch that came forward two weeks, which just shocked us. But generally, uh, the, uh, the launches slip out and And so you know it took longer than we thought, and more money than we thought and and all this, and so you know you've got to uh, again be prepared for that uh mentally i think okay, interesting. Uh, then there's uh, one question about the uh well, you guys
0: are building API ecosystem. Uh, do you have any negative experience with the third party developers not yet no cool well that's that's a clear answer for for you guys um yeah um well, there is also uh, quite many uh questions about the uh data that you are having and uh, is there like like you you are sending photos which can show terrorists or they can show about uh, pirates or politicians doing bad stuff or lots of things like how how do you manage and what are like responsibilities and like like It sounds also quite complicated problem, but you must have thought of this many times.
1: Absolutely, we spend a lot of time thinking about all the different use cases of our imagery and trying to ensure that the positive use cases are are, are out there, and minimise the negative ones. I mean, I, when you stop and think about it, that because of the resolution, and it doesn't touch personal privacy because you can't see a person, and it typically isn't very useful for the military because the military want much higher resolution, from it, even from drones or something like this, uh, for their targeting and stuff. It is useful for intelligence, and so we have intelligence agencies that are very interested in our data, um, and. You know, we, the way we see it is that the more people, as long as we do not not, uh, if, if, if as long as we don't hide the data from anyone, like anyone can get access to it um, as a customer, um, that that um, that transparency is generally beneficial uh, to humanity. I mean, and certainly when it comes to all the humanitarian stuff like uh, sustainable development goals that's certainly true. But even in pol- politics, I think that that's true. And yeah, I mean, we've, ha- we'll, we've had to cross bridges and we'll, we'll have to cross more in the future where, I mean, I don't think it's particularly useful for terrorists, but, you know, um, I, I can't say it's useless. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a good use, but like maybe someone will at some point and we'll have to address that challenge when it comes. I think the most important thing is that we will try and do the best to, to steer in the right way and deny those sort of parties access to the data if we find that they're using it for that. When you've been thinking about the possible use
0: cases, and like for the future, I was watching your TED Talks from 2013 and from them I was like, okay, this is really, really cool. But then when I started to think about the uh, massing learning and image recognition, then I was like, okay whoa, there must be so many use cases for these so uh what are some of your like like what wh- what is going to change the world like the biggest is it going to be like the hedge fund analytics or like what 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 is going to be the biggest thing that is going out from your data or the that your data
1: enables i think the sustainability ones are huge right and it's it's very you can't sort of i think the biggest commercial use case will probably be the hedge funds um, but um but hedge funds are just middlemen in a way i mean uh but what what you know whereas stopping deforestation on the planet you can 't really quantify the value, but that has huge uh impact on the existence of various species and uh and of course on climate change and so um that seems to be the you know protecting ecosystems, I think will be the most if you like in a humanitarian sense, the most valuable thing that will come out of it.
0: Yeah, humbly. Saving saving the humanity. Like, it sounds well, I don't quite know, that's, big. A, that's
1: a little bit of ex- yeah. uh, a stretch. I mean, <laughs> we're saving the humanity. We're trying to help. Oh, least. yeah, trying to
0: help <laughs> saving the humanity. Yeah, let's see. I, I trust that it can be saved. Um, Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, uh, you are in the space industry and I, I really have to ask, like, uh, so now, now you've been or now you've achieved the goal of taking photos of every sp- like place in the, in the Earth. So what is going to be your next stop uh, like from the space or aerospace inter- industry point of view, not the data and APIs and analytics, but like from that point of view? Are you going to march with Elon, or what is happening? <laughs>
1: uh, so firstly, we're going to constantly update and get better and better data. More, um, more, better resolution, better sp- um, temporal resolution, um, so higher frequency data, and uh, and and better spectral resolution. Increasingly, we're designing our satellites uh, to be uh, for for how the machines are going to read the data, because it's not going to be humans looking at all these millions of images. It's going to be machines, and then. Well, what what's particularly interesting there is that just like the near infrared band can help us to tell biomass which helps us for various humanitarian and agricultural applications other bands can help with other things like the uh, band in the shortwave infrared helps you with um, with uh, with soil moisture a band uh, another band in the visible spectrum helps you with atmospheric haze and other bands can help you distinguish between different sorts of materials on the ground and so and the machine learning is going to have a field day at having that sort of data in terms of detecting and tracking objects and 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 seeing change as it happens around the planet. So the data is going to get better. Um, but long term, uh, which I I think you're hinting at, um, Planet can apply a, a, its capabilities of you know rapid design of satellites and launch and regulatory and, and the and the ground stations and data analysis capabilities to other space missions, whether that's comms satellites or GPS satellites or planetary missions or whatever we like. There is a reason that um, we didn't call our company Earth. We called it Planet, uh, which is deliberately ambiguous as to which planet we might be interested in. Um, I personally favor us putting a settlement on the moon, ultimately. I mean, I'm biased because I've sent a few probes there, but. But actually, that's the much easier place to put a settlement. I do actually, even though we're mainly focused on helping the Earth, and I think that that's where humanity should be mainly focused, I do think it's a good idea to have a backup plan. Um, And it's a really stupid idea to not have a backup plan in particular, right? And we as a species and the rest of the species on the Earth do not have a backup plan. And the easiest and most obvious place to do that backup plan is on the Moon. Uh, I mean, not just by a little way; it's by far the easiest place. And so I... I, I agree with Elon about the, uh, uh, the objective, I disagree about the destination, and we've had many discussions over lots of whiskey about this, and uh, uh, we agree to disagree, but, um, but I tell you the moon will happen first because of sheer technological reasons.
0: Okay, okay, so then we will wait when we will get to the moon, but yeah, now would be a great time to ask from the audience and from the front
1: row, yeah. Oh, I love those catch boxes.
0: Uh, Do you have dead satellites? And what's your opinion about the space debris? How, you know, there there will be thousands of uh, mini-satellites constellations are planned. Uh, Is this uh, sustainable?
1: Yeah, actually, so orbital space debris is a really serious challenge, and I spent several years at NASA working on this particular problem, researching means of reducing the problem of orbital space debris. So for those that don't know where there's a large number of objects in orbit around the Earth uh, that are basically the leftover bits of satellites and... Um, and rocket bodies that have been launched over the decades, and now there's so many pieces, there's about 30 million pieces uh, and only about a thousand satellites, by the way, of which we have about 200 of them, Um, but about a thousand satellites, so most of it is just crap, Um, and the problem is that debris can collide with other bits of debris and then cause more pieces of debris, and then those pieces of debris then collide with more pieces, so you can have a runaway cascade, and in fact that situation, it's called the Kessler syndrome, is in operation at certain altitudes uh, where most of the satellites have been put, between 800 and 1,200 kilometers altitude. Um, So it is a real problem. Uh, We're not contributing to it at all because we're keeping our satellites really low, at 400 to 500 kilometers, where they naturally get uh, pulled down by the atmosphere after a couple of years. So they just get pulled down and they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and burn up. Now, you can, there is some pollution in a way, but it's a really, really tiny amount on the scale of things. So, the mass of these satellites is really, really small, and that's much better than them creating long-term debris risk. We do still have to solve that problem up there, and we are not working on that problem right now. When I was at NASA, we came up with a particular scheme for doing that. Uh, this uses ground-based lasers to nudge debris. Um, Not to, you know, explode them or burn them, but literally to use photon pressure to nudge them. So you predict forward, propagate forward the positions of all the objects, all these 30 million pieces. And when you see two are going to collide, you just illuminate one with a laser so that they just nudge it. If you do that 24 hours before the impending collision, you can nudge it out the way. And by using that, you can actually stop the collisional cascade. Uh, But that system doesn't exist yet. They're building one now down in Australia as a test system. And we'll see if it works. That would be able to solve uh, that problem. Just like climate change, the sooner you nip it in the bud, the better. But the micro-satellite constellations, as long as they don't go up into those orbits, they're not causing the problem. Uh, the bigger problem is when, uh, when countries I- intentionally blow up satellites, uh, which they do occasionally. Like the US and China recently both blew up a satellite in these bad orbits and they created big mess. And that, that, that causes the big mess, right?
0: Hi, my name is Valeria, Arctic Startup. And as you know, at Slush, we are celebrating entrepreneurship. and. When we think about space entrepreneurs, we notice that many of them are coming from science, just like you, yourself. So, in your opinion, what do you think, what kind of qualities do you as a scientist have to be a competitive as an entrepreneur? And then the vice versa, what kind of entrepreneurial skills many scientists are missing?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think... um Frankly, if I survey my science friends, I don't think many of them would be good entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, um, uh, but scientists do certainly have certain skills, of course, first principles analysis is super important. I mean, so often doing something new is about thinking from first principles the best way to do it and realizing that the current way people are doing it doesn't make sense. Like. Um, If you just went into satellites and said, oh, we'll build some satellites, you would look at the current satellites and then make something similar, maybe slightly smaller, slightly cheaper. We were just like, what do we specifically need to solve this problem and only solve that problem and work the other way? And so that principle analysis is really important. Also, I think another advantage of scientists is that uh, scientists don't typically care about money. Um, which is a good thing because, for example, I have no qualms about asking billionaires for large checks because I just don't care about the money. I care about using it to do good. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've done well raising money. I think partly is because I'm not obsessed with money, uh, but actually about doing this mission. What are your thoughts about using uh, commercial off-the-shelf components on satellites? Any Using commercial? Commercial off-the-shelf components. Any ex- experiences on that? Well, as I mentioned, we did throw, put some phones into space, and uh, they did work. Uh, and we do utilize phone components and all the chips that are developed for things like this, um, or processors and hard drives. We use you know, solid-state hard drives that are developed for laptops, and processors that are developed for, for laptops, and ARM processors that are developed for, for smartphones. Um, We put them in very different boards, and there's a lot of uh, complexity to how we integrate those boards and prepare them for space and stuff, but we use commercial uh, components all the time. Uh, One question regarding uh, small set uh, uh, industry. So, uh, which parts of the industry do you see to develop the most in the next coming months or years? Um, will develop the most yeah yeah whether yeah. it is like hardware part or launch or or software part operations thank you um I think both are evolving for us. I think the industries that are most interesting for entrepreneurs right now are those that are at the cusp of being digitized in a way, you know, and medicine is there, and um, so healthcare is like in a fascinating time right now um I love those hard problems at the interplay between uh, hardware and software and the, when they 're evolving fast i mean we 're taking this agile aerospace approach to the hardware even more agile of course to the software side. We upload software you know every couple of weeks. Um, um, at NASA, you, know, you would have to plan and upload for at least a year. I mean, it would take a year of testing to make sure that the satellite You weren't going to accidentally send that billion dollar satellite into a spin or make it... brick it, you know, that would be really unfortunate. And so they have all these processes to ensure that you don't brick the satellite. Where... where for our satellites, because we've got so many, we have redundancy, the satellites don't cost as much, uh, we have interns that come in and we're just like, oh, start uploading code. And they're like, what? And we're like, yeah, yeah, just get going. Just don't put it across the whole fleet until, you know, <laughs> you've uh, tested it on one. So we're very much trying to use agile uh, software methodology. And, you know, if you look at the capabilities of a laptop, um, most of it is is people figuring out how to do new stuff with software on a known set of hardware. And and that... that development uh, that, that's, that created so much capability in Silicon Valley and elsewhere um, based on software um, hasn't happened in space yet because we haven't had this agile, let's just upload new software as we want to optimize the use of that hardware to do what we want to do. And now I think we're allowing that and that's going to really change things and so it's really the interplay I think between these two things. So for example, Um, On our next generation fleet, we have these GPUs and quad-core processors, uh, both of which uh, enable us to do much more uh, processing on board. We have much more hard drive space. We can actually store on each satellite a picture of the whole Earth at full resolution. And that enables us to do difference imaging and then just send down the changes. And we can do machine learning code on there to just do that ship detection or that, whatever it is that we're trying to do on board and then just send down that. That's super useful for then taking much more data and dealing with much more data and processing it locally, um, and so that's the kind of thing that can be afforded by that tight loop between software and hardware, and I think, as I said, it's analogous in other d- disciplines uh, where it's, it where it is very exciting. So I think it will be at the interplay between these two things. Let me explain one more thing: that the analytics is kind of being commoditized, and six years ago this was an obvious an obvious point, um, but but. Data is the key thing, you know, when people say data is the new oil, that's right. I mean, we will be able to sell our analytics for more than our data in the sense that an information stream is worth more than the picture. But the data is really fucking hard to get because you have to launch a fleet of satellites. And the analytics, well, anyone can download TensorFlow and within, you know, a few hours get automated ship detection on our data. So that bit's been commoditized. But this loop between the satellites and the software on board those satellites is really fascinating, um, in my opinion.
0: Thank you very much. I think uh, we have run out of time, but uh, thanks for your questions. Thank you, Will, for coming here.
1: No problem. Yeah. Thanks for hosting. This
0: was our last, so have a good day. (laughs) for listening to the Slush podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.